0: peppermint with a microphone, so hot. Just <laughs> tune it up, like... All right, welcome. Welcome. We are in Luke this evening, and this is our second study. We started it last week, and we're going to pray and then dive right into the text. We got, um, we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. It's not... I don't know if it's more than last week. But it's pretty substantial, so um, Luke's investigation um, showed a, a lot of information, and so it's going uh, to take some, some work to get through it tonight, so uh, be ready. We'll pray to that end, so let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you for the opportunity that you give us almost every week to stop in the middle of the week and to uh, consider your word, to, to gather together, uh, to be able to pray with one another and to look at your breathed out word. As we study Luke part two tonight, we pray that you would give us wisdom, insight, and discernment that we would otherwise not have. Lord, I'm thankful for Luke, I'm thankful for his hard work, and pray that it would spur us forward to do our own hard work tonight of considering the text. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. What was Luke's gospel based on? Yes, genealogy and his own historical investigation. I figured one smart aleck would say Jesus, (laughs) um, which you would be right as well. But yeah, the the difference with Luke is that it's based on his own historical investigations. So with Matthew, um, he he is the most Jewish of the gospel writers, and you can see that a lot of his considerations were looking at how the Jews responded to Jesus' message. And then with Mark, um, he was... Close, he was friends with Peter by God's divine movement. Um, he connected Mark and Peter. After Peter got out of jail, he went to Mark's mama's house. They hit it off, and you can see Mark telling the story, and he and Peter were probably a lot, of, a lot alike, very action-oriented and kind of fired-up uh, guys. Then with Luke, we have a guy who was not Jewish. He was a tax collector, um, and he was a doctor, so he was educated and he was well-versed. And he set forth to do his own historical investigations of the text. He wanted to consider particularly who Jesus was, what Jesus said about himself, what Jesus said about ministry, what Jesus said about the prophecies, what Jesus said about the future, what Jesus said about the nations. So who was Luke's letter written to? Theophilus. And what do we know about Theophilus? Yeah, yeah, Luke's benefactor, sort of an ancient sugar daddy. And so what he did was, he, at the very least, he found interest in what Luke was investigating. And so you see at the very beginning, he says um, this amazing opening uh, line here, the opening four verses. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things. That have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we see that Theophilus is referred to as most excellent, and that's not a, a term that you would just throw around back then, so... From a society standpoint, he, he, was, he was high class, and uh, he was interested in what was going on. And then we actually see in, at the beginning of Acts, which we believe Luke wrote as well, uh, that um, he, he says, as I wrote to you in the first letter, O Theophilus, I continue in this letter. Who was Luke's traveling companion? Paul. That's right. Why is that important? Paul's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's why it's important because Paul um, is an apostle, probably the last of the apostles, those who were actually commissioned by Jesus Christ to do Jesus Christ's ministry in the world. And so he had his, his own account. He was dedicated to gospel. He was dedicated to kingdom. And so to be able to travel with Paul would be like sort of traveling with the foremost expert of whatever it is you're investigating that would be very significant. He would have information. He would have firsthand accounts. He would be introduced to people that Paul would run with, other apostles, other disciples, other uh, recent converts, other Christians of the first century. And so it's important to understand how Luke got this information. He wasn't just a guy on Wikipedia trying to figure out who Jesus was. He he, he did some serious, in-depth, firsthand Like boots on the ground, kind of, kind of uh, movement. So, who wrote most of our Old Testament then? Luke, New Testament. Sorry, I was wrong in the question, and you were wrong in the answer. It was like I said Old Testament, you said Paul, and I said Luke. The New Testament, however, which came after the Old Testament, um, was written uh, mainly by Luke because Luke wrote the longest of the Gospels, and then Luke wrote the Book of Acts, and so that's actually a Fairly large chunk of the New Testament. It was written by Luke. So, from last week's study, uh, what did we see as part of Luke's main focus regarding what Jesus was like and what he focused on? What did we look at last week? What Jesus had to say about blank. The vulnerable. Yes. And who did that include? Women, orphans, children, widows. Yeah. And so our conclusion last week was that Jesus was certainly manly, and part of that masculinity was expressed in his concern for women, for children, for orphans, for widows, and those who were vulnerable in society. That's what Luke found in his investigation. When Luke did a lot of deep digging into the facts, that's what he found about Jesus from Jesus' own words. In Matthew uh, we consider Jesus as the son of David. In Mark, we consider Jesus as the son of man. not He was man, but he was not merely man. Remember, we talked through that. And then in Luke, what we're going to consider tonight is Jesus as the son of Adam. So if you're going to like have a little moniker or a little subtitle for each one, Matthew, Jesus as son of David. Mark, Jesus as the son of man. Luke, Jesus as the son of Adam, which is significant. So first, we're going to look at Remember, we're looking for, what was Jesus like? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus focus on? So tonight, the first thing we're going to look at is Jesus' concern for the poor. Look at 153, chapter 1, verse 53. You'll notice Luke has some fairly long uh, chapters um, because of his abilities to write and compile. In 153, this is Mary's song of praise. After Mary visits Elizabeth... The next part of the text is Mary's Song of Praise. And in 153, we read this. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. Now, again... We've got to take context. We're bird's eye view. We're up here. We're getting a different perspective. We're going to take in more details than just the ones up close. We've got to zoom out a little bit. Who's he writing this letter to? Theophilus. Theophilus. And what do we know about Theophilus? He's rich. He's rich. So, um, uh, Dever says, this is a funny verse to stick on page one or two of a book to be sent to wealthy Theophilus, unless Mary really said that. So, what we're getting at there is we see... As Luke considers Jesus' expression and concern for the poor, Luke proves himself to be a very honest historian. So we see this fact about Jesus' view of the poor, and then we also see a fact about Luke's, um, Luke's standing, his honesty, his, his, his clarity, um, his willing, his, uh, his not wanting to, to waffle on the details at all, um, specificity um, as a historian. So let's look at 2.24, and we're going to continue to look at Jesus' concern for the poor. In 2.24, we see, um, it says, look at 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy, to the Lord. So, essentially, Jesus' parents are doing what good Jews of the time would do, and they're taking him to the temple. It's sort of, what we, sort of our baby dedication, sort of something like that, um, but presenting him to the Lord according to the law. And it says in verse 24, And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So, from the get-go, we see that it's included in God's breathed-out word, it's included in this gospel detail that Jesus' own parents were poor. Because in Leviticus, it says you would either offer an animal for sacrifice, or if you couldn't afford one, you would offer up the two birds. And so we see the two turtle doves being offered up here, and that's a detail that Jesus wanted included. It's a detail that God wanted included through Christ, breathed out by God in this gospel detail to see he came from a poor family. And then over in 4.18, in each of these things, we're going to hit about four or five verses fairly quickly. In 4.18, it says... Um, when, this is Jesus rejected his na- at Nazareth as you've seen the subtitle he's, he's been tempted and um, he came to Nazareth where he had brought, been brought up as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the, prophet, um, of the pro- and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written so good Jewish boy he's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah he goes to a part that he should know about as a good Jewish boy and then he reads it as referring to himself, which was a monumental move, like a, like a serious game changer. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So, standing in the synagogue, young Jesus takes this and, and says, this is about me. Jesus sent, God sent me to proclaim good news to the poor in 4.18. And then over in 7.22... It says, uh, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have good news, preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And then over in 1233, it says, 1233, we see in 32 he says, Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure sure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth rust, uh, no moth destroys. And then finally in 1613, we see him saying, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will... Oh, hold on. Sorry. 1413. 1413. My notes look very similar in two sections, and I even did that in my office today and wrote, don't skip this part, and I did it. So go back to 14.13, sorry. 14.13 says, uh, in 12, and he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. That's funny, right? Because that's kind of our custom, like... Invite people you like, and in due time, they will invite you to their house. So it's sort of that debtor's ethic that we talked about before, sort of like, I'm going to have you over because you had me over. And so it's funny, because a lot of times it happens within the same month, and then those people don't ever have dinner again for like three years. It's it's weird. Um, But um, he's saying, don't do that. Instead, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Essentially, he's saying, don't make them dinner so that they can make you dinner. So, like, don't spend an extra percentage of your grocery budget on them just so that they can turn around and spend a portion of their grocery budget on you so that you don't have to cook that night. He's kind of saying this this isn't about, like, just having your buddies over and taking care of each other. He's like, go go to the poor. Go to those who don't have anyone who will take care of them. And furthermore, particularly, those who can't repay you. It's important to understand that the age in which we're talking about here was an age in which poor people were despised for being poor. Especially um, when it was evident that someone was poor, the belief was that if you were rich, you were blessed by God. And if you were poor, it was a curse from God. So we have to understand that. You know, bird's eye view, we have to understand looking down. As Jesus is saying, hey, quit having your friends over for dinner. Have the poor over for dinner. Hey, um, don't, don't just take care of one another. Take care of the poor. Hey, um, uh, the this gospel's for the poor. The message is for the poor. I came to bring good news to the poor. That would have seemed odd. It would be like like, like saying, I'm here for those who are cursed. Those who you view as, as not as good, not as righteous, not as um, deserving. And so this was kind of turning things upside down because the general consensus was if you're rich, you're blessed, and if you're poor, it's a curse from God. Look at 1619. In 1619, it says, this is a, probably the largest chunk we'll read tonight. So there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So it wasn't just gross, it was gross upon gross. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, for those of you who depend on amazing, extraordinary, fantastic things to convince your unbelieving friends that Jesus is Lord, here, that kind of shoots holes in it. He's saying if they don't believe the prophets, if they don't believe what's already been written, um, someone who is raised from the dead could go and tell them, and they wouldn't believe. And the point in this whole thing is his, the hearer's expectations were turned on their heads. I mean, you've got the rich man who's got this blessing, right? He's crying out to Father Abraham for a rich man to die and be in hell and look up and see Father Abraham, his forefather, would be a, a, a terrifying thing. And they want he, this, this whole teaching is to, to, to get them to understand this is going to be turned upside down. His hearers' expectations were turned on their heads and it happened more than once. Look over at 21.1. I also want to just say, as we read through this, we're, we're moving quickly. If you find yourself, like there, are every point we've looked at so far, I could stop and hammer on it for 15 minutes. Because there's so much there. And so as we're reading, I want to encourage you to stay in step with the Spirit. And if you find something that's convicting, if you see the rich man crying out from Hades for, just, for Lazarus to just touch his, the tip of his tongue with water because he's so miserable, if that convicts you, if you hear the call to serve the poor and that convicts you, please go spend more time on that text. I mean, we're moving so quickly that... That's one of, the, one of the few sort of pitfalls of this kind of a study is there's so much in this particular study tonight that is deeply convicting, but we move quickly. And just because we're moving quickly in this study doesn't mean that you should disregard what the Spirit has laid on your heart to consider. So write down in your notes, mark it in your Bible if you need to spend more time reading over a particular scripture and praying through it. Because that's how God convicts us and changes us and makes us more like Christ. That's part of our sanctification. So I don't want us to move over such a vast part of Scripture in such a quick manner that no one actually leaves with anything tangible. I want to be careful about that because there's lots of convicting stuff in the text tonight. In 21, 1-4, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Most of us sitting in this room contribute out of our abundance. Most of us have lots left over. I mean, because you live where you live and the time you live, you're among the richest people to ever walk planet Earth. Even if you're lowest income in the room... You're among the richest to walk planet Earth. Dever notes on that, he says, Jesus did not condemn the widow for her lack of financial prudence or planning. That's what they would have done. They would have looked at this poor widow and been like, man, she's barely got anything to, to give because of the way she, she's lived. Um, Jesus did not condemn the widow for her lack of financial prudence and planning. He commended her for the reality and fullness of her devotion to God. So we see a concern for the poor, But it's interesting because a concern for the poor results in warnings to the wealthy. Look at 620. So we see concern for the poor, but it's not a disregard for the wealthy, it's warnings. Because what we'll see in Jesus' teaching is a heavy heartedness towards those who are putting their hope in their wealth. So in 620, it says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. That statement alone during that time would have been just barely making any sense. People would have had to work hard because it'd be like looking at those who were... Who, like imagine if a homeless person was just sitting here just in rags and they smelled and they hadn't eaten and they were emaciated and they had nowhere to go and nowhere to sleep. It'd be like a bunch of people in $1,000 or $3,000, $5,000 suits with their cars all around them. You walk up to this guy and say, you're the most blessed here. You're the most blessed. No one's more blessed than this guy. It just, it'd just take a minute to like, wait, How? Like, that's what people would say, right? People would be like, well, how? What is that? How does that make sense? Because he doesn't look like it. And by society standards, he's just not. So what is this message that's kind of turning my perspectives on a TED, My perspective on a TED? So in 620, he says that. And then in 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So there's a woe here. There's sort of a... a um, Pay attention to this um, because um, you have received your consolation. What does that mean, you've received your consolation? What do you think that means? You got your blessing now. You don't need me to console you. Your money is consoling you just fine, is what the setting is here. And then it says over in 12.15... 1215, it's the parable of the rich fool, he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. During this time, apparently, there were people who sat around all the time considering what other possessions they could acquire. And they didn't have near the means we have today. We could spend two hours on our phone just looking at possessions we would like to acquire with no actual plan to acquire any of them and no consideration of what benefit they would actually bring. But it was still a problem then. And he's saying, your life does not consist in the abundance of the stuff you have. And then in 1233... It's fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And then um, in 34 it says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And over in 16, 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We have not progressed in this area. Like we haven't progressed to a point where, well, that was then. They were ancient and they didn't have you know, the technology we have. Now we can actually serve both God and money quite reasonably. No, you can't do it. You can't serve God and money. So there's these warnings. And Jesus' daily, in Jesus' day, worldly wealth and religious respectability often went together. In Jesus' day, worldly wealth and religious respectability often went together. If you had a lot of money and you had your stuff together, you could be on the inner circle of the religious people. Look at 1615. It says, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God and then consider 18:18 18, 18. and a ruler asked him good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good except God alone You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to the man, One thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. That's that thing we're okay to read about, but pray that Jesus never asks us to do the same thing, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, he should, he should sell everything and give it to the poor. What if Jesus asked you to do that? I mean, think about what it would be like to hear that. Could you? I mean, if there was some moment where there was an audible voice, sell everything, give it to the poor, then come follow me. Think about the ramifications of such a command. Now, to be clear, This is a command to this guy. Some people read verses like this, and it's like they they take it as it's a command to them just because it's written. You pray about these things. You may, in fact, have things you need to sell. You may need to bring some stuff to the youth garage sale. Shameless plug, because you have too much junk, and it would benefit them far, far more. So he says, sell everything, and then look at the response. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He became very sad, Because he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God! Exclamation point. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. So he's not saying it's impossible. He's saying it's possible. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in his time and in the age to come eternal life. In our current political environment, there's a lot of talk about socialism. And it's interesting because there's a number of people in Christian circles who hear some of the socialistic lingo, and quickly, very quickly, um, conclude, well, that's what Christians are supposed to do. And so during this time where we're talking about, you know, give your stuff away um, from Jesus's words, and given our current political environment, I just want to touch on this briefly. Um, First, there's a difference between the Christian design to be big-hearted and open-handed and give your stuff away willingly, and a government that essentially owns you so they can require you to give your stuff away. There's a difference between those two. There's a difference between the two. First, we need to see that. Second, um, when you start talking about that, the the water gets muddy, so I want to clarify something here. Jesus was not a Marxist fixated on redistributing material goods. That was not his main thing. Um, Nor was he just an ascetic. The ascetics were the people who um, were were fixed on ignoring material goods. So he wasn't about redistributing the material goods, and he wasn't about ignoring the material goods. Jesus was a spiritual realist who knew that good things become distorted and deceptive in a fallen world. Good things become distorted and deceptive in a fallen world. They allure us with promises of fulfillment that they can never fulfill. There are some people in this room who are making as much money as they've ever made. And you could just be as frustrated as you ever were. That's a possibility. An example of this distortion after the death of Grateful Dead's Jerry Garcia, um, every time I say his name, I want ice cream. It's interesting. I don't know why. Um, After the death of Grateful Grateful Dead's Jerry Garcia, his wife uh, reportedly said, Jerry died broke. We only have a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Let me read that again. Jerry died broke. We only have a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank. So my question is, how can acquiring more skew your view of what it means to be blessed? how can acquiring more skew your view of what it means to be blessed yep focus, focus. Yeah. yeah yeah somebody who really gets hungry yeah really appreciates a meal yes yeah, if you never get hungry, it's hard to ever appreciate the meal. And, and then there's the ever-changing standard, right? I mean, I remember as a young married person moved to Greenville, like, I had that number in the checking account. where As long as it's above that number, I'm totally cool. And at that time, I think the number was like maybe $100 or something. It was, it was not way up here. It was like, I'm totally cool with this. As long as we're above this, we'll be okay. And then and it, the next year, that number is a little higher. And then the next year, the number is a little higher. And it's like every time you get to certain balances and certain things that you own, it's like the standard of living goes up and you forget what it was like to have the, the freedom and the flexibility of having little. And you're kind of, you become owned by that because, as it says, it, it promises things that it can't deliver on. So it's, being rich is not an evil thing. It's not a sin to have money. It's a sin to let money own you. It's a sin to let money become an idol. It's a sin to try to serve money, um, to, to, to let it take the place of, of God. And so if, if there's a certain number, I feel like everyone has that number. As long as you don't go below this, we're totally fine. Um, if there's a number there that causes anxiety and distrust and lack of sleep and things like that, it's becoming an idol. And so, um, we only had a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Jerry died broke. That's, that's, that's a skewed view of what it means to be blessed. It's a skewed view of what abundance and what little is. So Jesus had concern for the most vulnerable in society, including the poor, who were looked down upon. He also had concern for the rich, that they would not put their hopes in their riches. Next, we're going to see how Jesus viewed Popularity. So we're kind of going through. We're kind of just touching on these things. Was, it, was he about this? Was he about this? Was he about this? How did Jesus view popularity? I grew up in a youth group where the youth minister's plan and approach included getting all the popular kids to youth group and then all the others would follow. He said that, like on stage into a microphone. It's probably recorded somewhere. That his goal... You know, if you just get the popular kids to show up, all the other losers will show up as well. He didn't say losers, but if they're not popular, you know, what are they? And so that was his approach to youth group. And I remember watching it, and for a while it worked. And then he would capitalize on the popular kids who didn't have father figures. And he would be sort of a father figure to those popular kids. Which can be noble, right? That's not an evil thing to try to, you know, help, f- you know, fill a gap that, that, that is significant in the life uh, of of, uh, of a young man. So then it started as, you know, he's sort of a dad figure to this guy, and then before you know it, he's sort of a dad figure to these thirty guys, and they're all uber popular, pretty people. And but that was his goal. That was his plan to get people to church, and people started calling him Papa Joe. And um, and then uh, after a while, um, he didn't do ministry anymore because he realized that that method could make him uh, a lot of money. And so now um, he is completely pagan, completely fallen, really, really, really rich. Um, If you turn on the TV, you would see; it would be not be odd to see um, his daughters. Who are beautiful and talented, and and he learned how to work the system, and now he has lots of people do the same thing. Get the popular people there; everyone else will come. Get the popular people there; everyone else will come. I, I witnessed it from seventh grade to twelfth grade, and it was effective for a while until the world consumed him. So my question is: Is this how Jesus moved? Did he? Did Jesus strategically position himself with people in positions of influence? Is that what Jesus did? Is that how? Like if how did this? No-name carpenter from Nazareth turned the world upside down. Was he just really good with people, and he got the people of influence kind of under his influence and surrounded himself with the right people? Well, obviously, if you've read your Bible at all, you know that Jesus generally surrounded himself with sinners and tax collectors, right? That's a repeated theme, sinners and tax collectors. I want to make it clear, in case anyone here works for the IRS... The Jews were generally disgusted with tax collectors, especially Jewish tax collectors, not because of their disdain for taxes, but because of their disdain for the fact that Rome was occupying their territory. So Rome, remember, all right, pop quiz. Anyone remember how Rome occupied Israel's territory? They invited them. Why? of the hammer. You remember the hammer? The Maccabees, they were were saviors at first, but then the rule was so oppressive and so violent that they call up General, anybody? General Pompey, that's exactly right. And and so uh, they call him up and he comes and he fixes it. But then comes Roman rule and Roman government and Roman infrastructure. So during this time, to be a tax collector was sort of like, well, yeah, you work for Rome. To be a Jewish tax collector would be like, you're a sellout. You're a total sellout. It'd be like if you had an oppressive government that you didn't agree with and you sat around and your whole heritage, your whole history was about being free and belonging to God, and this government was oppressing it. And then one of your buddies in that circle, who you always talked about that with, went and worked for the government. It'd be like, dude, you're a sellout. I can't believe you did that. That would be what it would be like to be a, a Jewish tax collector. But a tax collector alone was something to be sort of frowned upon. The, uh, uh, look at 15, 1 through 7. 15, 1 through 7. Remember, did Jesus utilize popularity. 15, 1-7, Now the tax collectors and sinners, there they are, were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Every time you see those guys, don't you just kind of want to punch them in the nose? They're just so smug and arrogant. So he told them, that's not what we do with smug and arrogant people as Christians. We don't punch them in the nose. It's just That was confession. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after this one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who have no repentance." How does Jesus' view differ from the religious folk of the day? What was the perspective of the religious people in those verses? Yeah, look down on the lost, hold the wealthy in high esteem. And how does Jesus view it? Total opposite. I'll leave the 99 who don't need me to go find the one who needs me. Hint, hint to the guys saying they don't need me. It's it's not very subtle at all. He's speaking directly to those who are just standing there saying, look at this guy eating with sinners and tax collectors. Consider even the fact that the birth of Jesus was first announced to shepherds. Generally, how do we portray shepherds in our Christmas pageants? Peasants. They're raggedy. What else? What about their character? What do we usually, how do they usually come across in our portrayals? They, they generally don't have any lines. They're just, they're eager and they see the star and they can't wait to get to Jesus. And they're, all, they're almost kind of this like really, really likable bunch of guys that were just totally, um, no one would expect that those guys who, um, who were out in the fields would be the, the guy. It was almost like because they were out in the field, they were less likely. It was, it was almost, we almost portrayed it as like it's a geographical issue. Like they were so far away, but they were the first ones to find out, not the guys in the city. The reality about shepherds is uh, that in the ancient world, shepherds were thought of as shifty, this is a quote I found shifty, untrustworthy, even thieving migrant workers. The general perspective of shepherds during the time was shifty, untrustworthy, even thieving migrant workers. Dever notes, in the 1st century, the 19th century, and today, Jesus builds his kingdom not upon the reputation people have when they enter the kingdom, but on the change that occurs in their lives once they're there. Dang, that hit me between my eyes in my study today. I had to back away from my desk and spend time in prayer because I don't always view people like that. It's confession. He, and he built... Was, and he was a good shepherd. Yes. So what, he's, what he could be saying as well to the shepherds is that okay, you are the ones that really don't care about the one that's lost. Yeah. But the good shepherd yes. would yes. care about that. Yes, it's not... It, he, what I want you to see here is he's not just leaning in the direction of the fringe people. He's changing people who may have been genuinely wicked, dangerous, not trustworthy. He's, he's, he's changing them. He's bringing them into the gospel. He's showing them himself as a good shepherd and setting a model for them. He's, Jesus is not sort of painting a picture. I, I had a phrase that came to my mind this afternoon where it's like... Um, it's, it's not worth living in a dangerous neighborhood if that's what it takes to reach dangerous people. I think a lot of people have that perspective. And Jesus did not. Here we see the kingdom is built not on the reputation people have when they enter it, but the change that occurs in their lives once they're there. And that gave Jesus, and it gives us, all the more reason to have concern for the disreputable person. Concern for the disreputable person. Concern for the disreputable person. Some people are disreputable because they're not trustworthy. Because they've done bad things. Because they live a a dangerous and violent lifestyle. Because they're destructive. We're supposed to reach those people with the gospel. I don't have many interactions with gangbangers and violent people. But here we see this focus and concern for the disreputable because of the change that occurs when the gospel is shared with them. So I want you to really prayerfully consider if this is convicting to you and if there are any changes you need to make in the way that you regard others. When you're around someone who makes you uncomfortable, do you have any gospel thought toward them? Or do you think, pull my children closer, get in the car, and let's leave? It's okay to be a good steward of your children. It's okay to consider safety, but safety can, can become an idol so easily. And we'll make if we make safety an idol, we will never take any risks for the gospel. And sometimes I wonder if we even see the opportunities in front of us. Um, because safety's more the lens we're looking through. The next question is: Was Jesus a nationalist who was mainly concerned with his own? Nation and the fate of it. So there was a theory um, about Jesus and Paul, where the theory goes that Jesus was a nationalist. He just wanted Israel to win. He wanted Israel to be named righteous again. He wanted Israel to have the world stage. And the theory goes that that Jesus's goal was for the gospel to affect Israel and change Israel, so that Israel would become true Israel and ethnic Israel would succeed in, in the world, and then. The theory goes that Paul's the one who brought up the Gentile stuff. There's a theory that says, I think maybe it was Paul who was the one who said, let's take this to the nations, let's take this to the Gentiles, let's let this change everybody. And so um, when we see theories like that, we have to ask the question, was Jesus a nationalist, Was, was his goal mainly a concern with Israel and Jewish identity? And so look at 13.10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, what would his ethnicity be, just to be clear? Yeah, very Jewish. Very Jewish. Not just kind of Jewish, very Jewish. He was a ruler of the synagogue. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine this twerp? Right? Jesus Christ just healed this lady. And the office manager over here is like, y'all come back on a day where that's what we do. There's no marveling. There's nothing amazing to it because he's so worried about the rules. He's so worried about the regulations and he does not understand what's going on here. 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Do not, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, he's appealing to their ethnicity, he's appealing, appealing to their Jews this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, should she not be loosed from this bond on, a, on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. They were put to shame, and the people rejoiced, because what he was speaking was wildly unexpected by ethnic Israel. He was not a nationalist by any means. He was all about God's plan. He understood, Jesus understood with clarity, Israel serves a massively significant role in world history. There's a reason for Israel. Here, the main con- what's the main conflict? What's their main conflict in those verses? The law. Yeah, it's the law. The Sabbath stands for the whole picture of Jewish identity. Dever notes that in the book of Luke, the Pharisees' misunderstanding of the Sabbath points to the way many people in Israel mistook Israel's role. The Sabbath is this great example. It occurs again in chapter 14. It's a great example of how Israel did not understand Israel's role. Because of the way that they misunderstood Sabbath gives us insight into the way that they misunderstood Israel. God intended for Israel to be a means for reaching the whole world. It was His plan from the beginning. From the beginning. It was not an afterthought. It was not a change. It was not just a New Testament development. There is prophecy that speaks to it. There is genealogy that speaks to it. There is Old Testament literature and narrative that speaks to it. God intended for Israel to be a means for reaching the whole world, but the Pharisees treated Israel as an end in itself. And the result of treating Israel as an end in itself is that they bound up the people with unnecessary and overzealous regulations. Unnecessary and overzealous regulations. When you think that your whole purpose is you, the tendency will be to those who are following you, you're going to hinder them and bind them with unnecessary, overzealous regulation. Look at 1926. Good grief. 1926 says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is a picture of Jesus saying, for Israel, by rejecting Jesus, they reject opportunities forever. By rejecting Jesus, they reject some opportunities forever because they were more interested in protecting their own little kingdoms. Israel was more interested in protecting the kingdom of Israel rather than the kingdom of God, which extended far beyond Israel. Jesus' ministry was not concerned merely with the ethnic Israelites, but with the whole world. Look at 338. This is where we get the son of Adam quote that I um, explained. Jesus, in the book of Luke, in this this account, um, is... The religious Israelites—it just so much of what he said—they just they they weren't expecting it, and and it turned things upside down. In 3:38, there's a difference between the genealogy in this book and in the other books because in 3:38 it says, and and um, it's in the genealogy of Christ section. Um, It says the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Jesus' genealogy isn't just traced back to ethnic Israelites. It's traced traced back to the garden. It's traced back to Adam. So when we say that Luke's presentation of Jesus as the son of Adam, what that means is that from the get-go, Jesus' concern was for the whole world. Jesus' concern for the nations and not just his own people is seen clearly in these verses. And then it's seen clearly in 1329 where it says, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Endeavor closes with um, this statement. In in Luke, um, the word salvation is used in more times than any other book in the New Testament, and it's used in more variations. You see Mary praising God as my Savior. You see Zechariah praising God for the salvation he was bringing. Angels proclaimed a Savior being born. Simeon recognized Jesus as God's salvation, and that was significant because of judgment. Jesus warns them about judgment throughout the text, and we're not going to go to all of them um, because we're low on time, but because of judgment, there's a need for salvation. Because God is perfectly holy and his law has been transgressed, judgment is coming. And so Jesus showed compassion in saying judgment is coming. When you say to someone else that judgment is coming, you're not being judgmental. You're showing compassion because it's true. If it was your idea, it would be judgmental. But because it's true to life and it's true to history and it's true to tradition and it's true to everything God has breathed out, it's actually very merciful and helpful and loving to explain judgment to people who've never heard about it. But because there was judgment, there was a need for salvation. And here at the end, it says, the storyline in Luke's gospel points to Jerusalem like one big arrow. Because Jerusalem is where Jesus hanged on the cross, where he became as vulnerable to abuse as a woman or a child, where he was made poorer than a beggar, where he was despised as a traitor, where he was cast out like a Samaritan or a failed disciple, And he did it not for himself alone. He did it for you and for me, whoever we are, if we will find in Jesus our only hope. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that there is just so much more in this book. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would guide each of us accordingly. Uh, Some of us will need to leave here and not go out to dinner because we need to think about something in particular. Some of us... We'll need to wait until tomorrow where there's more time to think through some of these details. Some of us will need to sit and spend some time in the, in the gospel of Luke and read through this and consider how we're moving. Lord, my hope is that Luke's investigation of what Jesus said and what Jesus claimed and what Jesus' plan was from Jesus' own lips, that that would transform us and make us view other people like the way Jesus viewed them. That it would make us eager to engage with other sinners. That it would make us eager to bring hope to people who don't even understand clearly about the coming judgment. That we would see it loving to speak salvation to people as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we um, as we go about our ways, that we would be attentive to those around us who are dying. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Before y'all leave, I want to share one quick story that actually relates to this, and I didn't think about it until I was praying. Uh, My cousin, Jill, uh, her dog got loose last night, or no, this morning, and she was walking around trying to find the dog in the neighborhood, and um, her and her husband were looking for this dog, and they came up on a car that had a garden hose going from the tailpipe into the window and the window was rolled up. And there was a teenage girl who was dying. She was trying to take her own life. And they came up and um, saw it, realized what it was, ripped the hose out, opened the car door, pulled the girl out, the girl didn't wanna come out, she was already, you know, affected. And they had to call law enforcement By the end of today, that girl's getting treatment and she's alive. One of the things Lindsay said was she was like, I'm so distracted with so many things, I could have been a person who walked right by that car, not even have realized someone was dying. And that happened this morning. And as I was praying, I was thinking, Good grief, that is a perfect illustration of what we see in Luke, where you could walk by someone who's dying. And you may not even know it because you're so distracted with other things. So the encouragement in that is not to be, not a guilt trip, but just to stay in step with the Spirit and be attentive to those that God brings in your path. Because judgment is coming and Christ is the only hope. So be encouraged and, uh, and know that just as much as there is life in that young teenage girl who's trying to take her own life tonight, as, she has as much life as she has someone else could have if you bring them the gospel and they would otherwise still be in the car. So, y'all are dismissed. I'm not going to pray again, even though I want to.